Welcome to this extra reflection from the National Galleries of Scotland. I'm Ewan Bremner, and in these shorter episodes, we dive into another aspect of the artists and ideas from our interviews. Robert Cahoon and Robert McBride, known as the Two Roberts, met at Glasgow School of Art in 1933. They immediately became close friends and then lovers. This was the beginning of a lifelong partnership for both artists. Patrick Elliott is senior curator at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. He organised a past exhibition of the two Roberts' work and tells us their story. Robert McBride was born in Maybole in Ayrshire in 1913 and Robert Cahoon was born the following year in Kilmarnock. They were both from poor families and they took a studio together, I think, in Renfrew Street near the, the School of Art. And they were never separated thereafter. They had extraordinary explosive fights uh, throughout their lives, completely different characters. Robert McBride was a man whose glass was always half full, a very sort of um, friendly, colourful, lively man uh, who danced on pub tables and always wrote the letters on both of their behalves for trying to get uh, commissions and so on. Funny enough, their characters in some way came out in their works. Cahoon was argumentative, taciturn. He was an angry individual. And McBride defended Cahoon as if his life depended upon it and put his painting on hold, actually. He was the person who did the washing, did the ironing, sort of looked after them, their finances and so on, while Cahoon got on with his work in the studio and was generally believed to be the greater of the two artists. He certainly had more exhibitions, more interest from collectors and so on. I think their downfall was drink. They were hard-drinking Scots, and when they moved down to London, just at the end of the Second World War, they fell in with a hard-drinking Soho crowd, people like Lucian Freud... Francis Bacon was a great friend of theirs, and they spent a lot of time drinking. I don't know when they did their painting. It must have been done, I don't know, sort of in the mid-afternoon or something, but one gets the impression they were out all night, up late, did a bit of painting, then went out to the pubs again. The tragic truth is that their greatest art was done when they were drinking at their heaviest. <clears throat> it's a hard one to, to swallow that, but um, between about... 1945, 46, 47, 48, they were at the height of their careers. There are numerous articles about them. Vogue did a piece on them. They were the most fated artists of their day. And they started producing what was really the most avant-garde, edgy, sort of existential kind of work done in Britain at that time. It was part of a movement, sort of the back end of neo-romanticism, but it was, um, they were the best at it. They were working in a style that was obviously derived from Picasso. A number of artists were working in this Picasso-esque style. Rather unusual colours, muted greens and browns, very particular colour pattern, really edgy subjects. Backgammon sets with these sort of spiky forms, triangular forms, melons full of seeds. So in 1950, I think it was, they were encouraged by their dealer to move out of London. They were becoming such hard party addicts that their dealer, Duncan MacDonald, supported their move to Lewis in Sussex, a very uh, pleasant, leafy, provincial town, which was a, a great surprise, really, to find that these, these two guys went down there. Anyway, they did, and oddly, they lived in this place that was partly a girls' school. 
And so they had more time, more freedom, more color in their lives. But you get the feeling that it didn't actually work for them. And then the idea, the proposition came up that they look after a friend's children in Essex, in Tilty Mill, a kind of farm. I think they went there in 53. You know, didn't have electricity, let alone um, you know, water or anything. It was right in the country. Uh, there were pigs and, and, and cows outside the front door. So they had a shed in the garden, and Cahoon used that. And McBride, his job, was to look after the kids, clean their clothes, iron for them. He didn't do an awful lot of painting during that period. Fights all the time. Their lives are so extraordinary and so interesting that I think they've, it's rather uh, shadowed, overshadowed their art. McBride's later work is amongst his best. They had a little cottage in Kersey in, in Suffolk for some years, but they were pushed out when the owner of it sort of was rather nervous they were going to burn the place down. I think that Cahoon had left a cigarette alight and it had uh, caused some problems. And they were, they were blatantly rude to people. Cahoon in particular was an angry man and uh, he was difficult, impossible to control, in fact. And he just burned all his bridges. I mean, it's impressive in a way. He just didn't care. They ended up on people's floors. But I hope that doesn't obscure the fact that there were giants at what they did at their painting. Imaginative, daring, unusual, and utterly committed uh, in this beautiful way to their work. They just wouldn't, um, they wouldn't let get things get in the way. They wouldn't change their characters. They, were, they just did what they could um, until they died. Uh, their painting killed them. So how do modern artistic partnerships help business and creativity go hand in hand? We spoke to Matthew Dial and Louise Scullion, one of Scotland's most established artistic teams. They distill and interpret nature in their work working with sculpture, photography, video and sound. My name is Louise Scullion. And I'm Matthew Dale, and we're Dale and Scullion. That sounds a bit cheesy. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, do that again. We knew each other's work at Glasgow School of Art. I was, I completed a postgraduate and Louise completed her undergraduate and we, we saw each other's work and we realised there was, both, both of the works had maps in them and both spoke about context and a loca- different locations, Scottish locations. And then we were both selected uh, for the British Art Show, which was touring. And uh, I suppose we started dating. But I remember back to that time when uh, in one of the venues that the British Art Show was at, we had to give a little talk on our work. And I remember hearing Matthew talk about soil and spirituality and thinking "Mm, that's something I'm really interested in and so it felt like there was quite a deep um, connection. I think our intention was to continue working individually but it was it was tough you know it's tough being a young artist with no income (laughs) and nobody really asking you to make work to keep motivated so we tried doing something collaboratively and our first collaborative work was a work called The Bathers, where we made these three kind of um, like swimming changing cubicles. <laughs> and, uh, and the place we were living, St Combs, was right at the, the, that kind of pointy shoulder of Scotland. <laughs> and so we had this huge amount of sea 
which was thrilling to be next to. So we lived there for 11 years and were totally skint, but it was a great foundation for our practice. I think we are a community of two, uh, but we also work with a lot of other people, um, musicians and uh, makers. The, the type of work we do involves engineers and uh, designers as well, so I, I, I would think we are in a wider community of, of makers. It's about the work with us rather than about us personally. Uh, sometimes the, the, the artist themselves is the work. You know, with us it's not so much, so we don't need to be present so much ourselves. I think Matthew's always had a kind of big idea, you know, where he's been quite good at keeping us on track of states seeing where the, the long-term goal was, whereas I'm probably better at the the kind of detail of making something look nicer. I, I actually don't think we could survive individually. No, I don't. Because I'm kind of good at the beginnings of things, but then I'm not great at carrying it through through the production stage or, or the detail stage. And I was even thinking about photography, like... I kind of take the make the, the the raw image, but Louise does all the editing and all the production. So we kind of work really good as a team, and because we're so different, we actually test each other's ideas a lot till breaking point sometimes. But you know, when when we agree on something and we say right, that's that's what we think, uh, then the two of us work together to realise it. When I was having children. Not that Matthew cut me very much slack. I remember pushing a van out of sand when I was like you're a bit eight, of pusher than what I am, aren't you? eight months pregnant. But I could keep, I could keep the the business, the practice was going. You know, when I was particularly with the younger one, younger child, I remember there was a work being installed, and I was I was here, not not involved. Whereas, you know, if I'd been a solo practitioner, I would have been out of the game for you know, a good year or whatever. It runs like a business. Well, it does now. It does now, yeah. Well, it used to be really organic. We're more in a position where we run it like a business. There's a lot you have to do to keep that keep that going. Basically, we, we have to run our house, run the car, uh, and, and keep two boys going all from the income you have from making art. Any, any partnership responsibility integrity and putting the work in. Thanks for downloading this bonus episode of Reflections, Art, Life and Love. You can listen to the rest of the series by subscribing on your podcast app. And why not find out more about the artworks on the website, nationalgalleries.org.